0: Caroline Goldman, Episode Four: Fatherhood. Hi, I'm Caroline Goldman, and I'm a psychologist for children and teenagers based in Paris. I published several books, and I've been teaching for more than five years in college. This podcast is about informing parents or any stakeholder involved in the well-being of children. The title of this podcast contains the word father. If there's no father in the story you've experienced, or in the story you're currently experiencing with your child, please allow yourself to hear second parent instead of father. And in the same spirit, first parent instead of the word mother. As it happens, first parents, those who welcome the baby and go on maternal leave, are statistically more often mothers, and the second parents who live with them are more often fathers. Most of the families I meet fit into this pattern. Every parent is affected by what I'm going to say, regardless of their gender or their biological link to the child. At the end of the podcast, I'll talk about family configurations where there are no fathers, and I'll give some advice on how to ensure that the structure they provide can continue in their absence. By father, I mean an individual close enough to the mother, physically and psychically, to play a very important role in the psycho-effective development of their child. Here is the first of these roles: Before any psychic construction, there must be a biological reality. The father is essential to the conception of a human being. This is far from anecdotal, because this reality triggers the psychological need in each of us to know our biological origins. To examine where we come from. By passing on their surname, the father also places the child in a line of descent that gives them some better visibility over this part of their roots. Regardless of ideology, any psychologist who sees patients, young or old, will be able to testify to the fact that not knowing the identity of one's parents is a terrible wrench, a wound, more or less painful, that will never heal until this information is obtained. During pregnancy and the first three months of maternity leave, the father acts as an indispensable support for the mother. Caring for, feeding, and looking after a baby is exhausting. This experience over several months puts absolutely all the mother's mental and physical resources to the test. Without a material and moral support, it becomes almost impossible to support a baby. I'm one of these people who believes that it takes a whole village to support a mother who has just given birth, so that she, in turn, can support her baby. So what does this paternal support really mean? It means just being there. Listening, empathetically, and non-judgmentally to the mother's tiredness and ambivalence. Showing affection, acknowledging her, helping with the housekeeping, giving compliments, and, of course, being there for the baby, day and night. From the end of the maternity leave, the father, again, takes on an absolutely central role. The mother returns to work, the baby begins to smile and to recognize their little world. The mother-baby fusion is ready to come to a gentle end, and the father will play an indispensable role as a separating third party in this defusion operation that we psychologists believe is imperative to curb potential serious psychological illnesses, in which the psychic spaces of the mother and child continue to be poorly differentiated. It's also at this point that the father will play his role as the first socializing agent in the child's life. The father will transform the fusional mother-baby duo into a social group by seeking to rediscover romantic intimacy with his partner and also by investing in his child, the way his parents did in him. Relationship investments will no longer simply be between two people, but between three, with all the multiple interactional possibilities that this can produce, from dilution to appeasement. I find that people have a poor idea of the extent to which a child's social life is linked to this very first experience of the family group. And yet, in my consultations, when the child suffers in their relationships at school or with friends, I'm always interested in how their father was able to fit into the relational space between them and the mother. I'm also interested in how the father has brought his child into his own social life. Does he have a family and friends around him? Is he at ease amongst other people? Does he sometimes take his child out to explore the outside world? Or does he always remain secluded and alone at home? Does he take them to school in the morning? Does he pick them up in the evening? What image does he project verbally of the world and of others? Does socialization make him flourish or make him suspicious and distrustful? The linearity between the investment in the social world by the father and by the child after him is often striking. From the age of one, as I mentioned in the third episode, children call out for educational limits. They naturally question their teachers about what they are allowed or not allowed to do. The involvement of the father as the first limiting agent is central here for the simple reason that it is extremely difficult for a single parent to be everything at once, i.e. to be the one who cradles, cares and nurtures every day in a close relationship colored by empathy, and suddenly to become sufficiently distant from the child to intimidate them and curb the expression of their desires. You can't go from being a restorative agent to a frustrating one without the help of a third party. The mother-child bond has generally been fusional and fulfilling and therefore also very stimulating. The father's place, traditionally a little further removed from everyday life, allows him to embody the law, not because of what he is, of course, but simply because of his position as a third party who is not the mother. I have observed that when an adult gives a child a rule, it remains a simple conversation for the child. But if two adults tell them the same rule, they will accept it as law. For this reason, the father's presence at the dinner table is particularly important. And in his absence, the mother can help give the father this symbolic function to help the child integrate it. For example, I'm not sure dad would appreciate the way you're talking to me. Or I'll tell dad what you've just done, etc. Dad and all third parties should be reassured by the gratifying nature of this mission I am associating with them. One can think of the infinite gratitude that one might have had for your dedicated but demanding teachers those who have helped you progress beyond your expectations. And also for your sport coaches, I'm thinking in particular of judo and rugby coaches, so demanding in terms of discipline and so appreciated by their little athletes. This role of authority is absolutely perfectly compatible with tenderness, trust, laughter and fantasy. Children make no mistake about it. They intuitively identify very well those who give them the tools to grow up and become proud of themselves because it's immensely satisfying to gain wisdom. I'm going to tell you a little personal anecdote to illustrate this paternal productive function. My first daughter was about 10 months old and used to fall asleep very easily on her own. One evening, when her father wasn't there, she refused to go to bed. She cried every time she was put down. I stayed with her until my next attempt to leave. She and I spent the evening singing songs, cuddling, joking, laughing, etc. And the trouble was that everything had been so enjoyable that she just couldn't let go of the relationship with me to let herself go to sleep. I tried pressing her against me, rocking her in the dark so she would stop looking at me, but she would raise her neck and smile at me waiting for the next activity. Nothing worked. Her father came home a bit later... And I remember this scene because it was particularly metaphorical. Our flat was well heated because it was winter and it was snowing outside. So when he came in, he let a cold wind blow him in and there was snow on his shoulders and hair. I told him how tired I was, how annoyed I was, and how I hadn't managed to get our baby to sleep. He approached us with authority and confidence, still wearing his coat covered in snow, and said, I quote, "'You go out of the room and you go to sleep.'" He put our baby in her bed, and I heard her snoring a second after her head touched the pillow. I was a little upset to see how easily he'd carried out the operation i had been stumbling over for three hours in vain, but also very admiring of the soothing power he had over both of us. Winnicott's theories on the father's protective stimulating function were thus strikingly illustrated. I should point out that while the parental third party function is imperative at the start of the structuring of educational limits in early childhood, it will be much easier for the mother to do without the effective presence of the third party thereafter. Because once an authority is built, it's built for life. I've referred several times to the early fusion between mother and baby, physical fusion at first, since pregnancy consists of sharing a body, then psychic fusion. Winnicott called this fusional state primarily maternal preoccupation, or PMP. It is described as a normally pathological second state in which the mother is immersed and which is characterized by a kind of super attachment, super empathy for her baby. According to Winnicott, this enables her to quickly decipher their vital needs and psychic dispositions, and thus ensure their survival. However, what remains of this passive attitude in most mothers is an empathy that is sometimes a little unreasonable, tinged with anxiety and hyperprotection, which makes it difficult to see the child grow up and become autonomous. So it is not unusual for mothers to continue to adjust the world to their child's impulses without expecting the child to learn to adjust their impulses to the constraints of the world. I don't know if my examples will resonate with you, but I think this dimension is illustrated quite often by the different ways in which mothers and fathers walk with their child in the street. Mothers often tend to keep an eye on things and closely track their children, who therefore don't pay much attention to their pace or the direction they're going. Fathers, on the other hand, are often less attentive, which can worry mothers, and so force their children to take responsibility for this vigilance so as not to get lost. This, of course, helps them to grow up. It's fair to say that fathers, by keeping a more reasonable distance from their children, play a major role in their autonomy. The father is equally often a prime source of moderate stimulation. When the child is very young, their father frequently offers them little motor challenges. This can sometimes frighten mothers concerned about their psychological and motor security. The father, confident and less empathetic, let's say reasonably empathetic, challenges their baby to hold their head, roll on the carpet or walk on all fours. He makes them jump in the air to make them laugh, then later on will encourage them to walk without the pushchair, get on a bike, ski and so on. In other words, he's giving them modern skills that will later give them great confidence in their ability to act in the outside world. Every child wonders, more or less consciously, about what he or she will become, about what they will be like in the future. For little boys, the father plays a particularly central role as a support for identification. Whether we tell him or not, he very quickly realizes that his future lies in becoming a man like dad. I often say this to fathers when they have sons that all the spotlight is on them, and I smile to see so many little boys copying and pasting their fathers. The same posture, the same steps, the same clothing styles, the same smiles, the same interests, the same ways of talking. I should point out here that fathers can of course also be special role models for their daughters, especially if they invest in them as the hares of their knowledge. But society is clearly more committed to these identification movements between parents and children of the same sex. In short, the father shows his son how to love a woman and his daughter how to be loved. I'd like to slip in something that I think is very important and which will come halfway between this paragraph and the next. I constantly observe in my clinic that the image of the father exists half through the words that the mother uses to define him. Every time the child hears his father described as kind, brave, intelligent, or with other positive characteristics, the mother brings her structural functions to the life of their child. She induces serene identification responses towards this ally in their upbringing. Here... Finally, is the last function that the paternal function evokes for me. It is the springboard for access to secondary symbolization. I'm going to explain this fascinating concept to you, and it's not as complex as it sounds. A newborn child sees the reality of the world in terms of its materiality and what it suggests to them sensorially. For example, mommy has big hair, the bowl is round and rolls. When you press the radio, it makes music etc. But all of these perceived realities are only the first stage in a child's comprehension of the world. They constitute what is known as primary symbolization, or access to representations of things. At a later stage, and at the instigation of a third party, most often the father, all this reality will be put into words, enabling the child to take a step back from it. This gradual stage of maturation is called access to secondary symbolization or word representation. I'm going to give you a powerful example of this access, the impact of which can be felt by everyone in a child's life. Let's imagine the scene. Paul, age six, refuses to go to his piano lesson. It's cold outside, he hasn't done enough practicing, knows he's going to be told off and would much rather stay at home in front of a video game. His mother calls for him six times to ask him to pack his bag with his music and put on his coat and shoes. He grumbles, negotiates, complains, and tells his mother in all sincerity that she is mean. The scene, and its associated effects, could end there. Mummy's forcing me to do something painful. Therefore, she's mean. Until a third party intervenes. The story might go something like this. You know how lucky you are to have a mom who enrolls you in music, interacts with your teachers, helps you practice, makes sure your equipment is ready and encourages you to learn the skills that will make you happy and proud in a few years time for the rest of your life? Adults who didn't learn music often bitterly regret it. Their parents didn't make the same effort as your mom did for you. If she didn't care about you and didn't love you, she wouldn't go through all this hassle. It would be much easier for her to leave you in front of her video games. Every time she pushes you to go to your lesson and work, I hear how much she loves you. You can see this journey. Using just a few words, you can take the child from resentment to recognition, from one representation to another representation that is opposed in meaning thanks to the distance offered by this third-party discourse. It has a diffusing and a symbolic effect. And that's it. I've covered what I consider to be the main functions of the father. Here are some family configurations where there are no fathers and some advice on how to keep the structuring functions alive in their absence. When the father has passed away, I recommend reading the autobiography of Albert Camus in Le Premier Homme and Jean-Paul Sartre in Les Mots. These two great men did not know their fathers, but the latter existed in a symbolically powerful way with the aura of war heroes whose portraits were placed in the mantelpiece and whose memory was praised with pride. I advise mothers to talk about the dead father and the proud look he would have given on their child. But above all, to be happy, preferably with another adult who will live in this space with the child on a daily basis. When the father is unknown to the child or disappear during the pregnancy, I advise the mother to tell a sufficiently beautiful story about their history and their conception. Reassure the child that their father's absence is not linked to their value as a child because they are absolutely wonderful and any father would dream of having them as a son or daughter. But that this absence is due to their adult relationship, their disagreements, their different plans. I'd also advise the mother to add that he certainly thinks about them every day, which is very probably true. If the father brought up the child and then abandoned them, It is imperative to reinscribe this abandonment in the father's childhood history. Fathers who abandon their child have generally been abandoned themselves, or in any case, very badly taken care of. And here again, to reassure the child that this departure has nothing to do with their value. I also think it's important to bear in mind that every parent who abandons a child is first and foremost a parent who had the intuition that their child was potentially toxic. We don't talk about this enough, yet listening to parents leads us relentlessly to this observation. Abandonment can be the least worst solution when things go wrong. If the father is ill or very impaired, I think it's important that his active power can be symbolized by the child through the mother's words. In particular, by evoking memories of how he was when he was active. Finally, if the child is born of an anonymous donor conception, I can only advise mothers firstly to choose an option that offers visibility of his identity, access to a file, a profile, a name, a photo, as well as a few characteristics describing him and justifying his procreation assistance. Secondly, to authorize the child to talk freely about the subject for as long as they wish. And finally, to find support from third parties, whoever they may be, to bring up this child. In the past, men had much more power over society and their families than they do today. This power, to which many abuses of power have inevitably been attributed, is gradually being eroded in favor of parity in the West, and we can only rejoice at this for all the women of today and tomorrow. With the increased freedom, education and salaries of their female companions, the paterfamilius have undergone major changes in line with these developments. The all-powerful fathers have started sharing family tasks, and educational functions have been harmonized. Tenderness and authority are now equally shared by both parents in the majority of the families. But, at the same time, a new educational ideology, which I had the opportunity to talk about in the second episode, has emerged under the name of positive parenting. The French representatives of these movements, which has been very much in vogue for the last 10 years or so, have, in my opinion, contributed to maintaining an era of incestuous maternal fusion that excludes fathers from all their functions. Most of these figureheads speak only to mothers, claiming that when their husbands find the positive parenting they practice with their children unsuitable, it's always because they were hurt as children. Therefore, suggesting that any opposition to this dogma is the consequence of a traumatic repetition. They encourage their female readers to empathize with their supposedly wounded husbands to explain to him why he is going astray and also the reasons for his blindness. Support that I would personally be tempted to describe as castration with contempt, since in this scenario the father's words become a symptom that only the mother is capable of curing. I can't tell you how many times I've heard myself telling mothers that the remedy for the chaos in their family life, which has sometimes been going on for years, was always right there, close at hand and ready to act in the form of the child's father. I would like this episode to help rehabilitate the role of the father in the psychological development of children. The father is the main support for the mother who will be able to support their baby. Through his involvement, he will be the first separating third party to protect the child from any risk of alienating fusion. As the child's first socializing agent, he or she will introduce the child to the outside world and introduce the child to his or her family name, tones of voice, body, and motor skills. It will help the child to set educational limits and will be a vehicle for empowerment, self-confidence, and civilization through words. Lastly, it will be the preferred means of identification for a little boy. The mother has a fundamental role to play in the meeting between the father and the child. She will constitute the first bridge between them. And fathers who have not known any fathers or whose fathers have given them little structure will particularly need the support of their partners to establish a secure, supportive position for their child's future. That's it for today, thank you for listening.